Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was The Monkeys' Pleasant Valley Sunday, the original single mix from 1967. It's because I've got David Wells again here, compiler of Heroes and Villains, The Sounds of Los Angeles, 1965-68. A huge welcome, David. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. So you've ventured over to the United States, an incredible period, even though it was just a few short years the range and depth of the material is uh, so strong. 
That's right. Yes, we just did um, West Midlands compilations. Uh, now we've, we've kind of um, gone over the water, as it were. And uh, yeah, Los Angeles. There's just so much stuff from that era. I know, kind of sort of collector viewpoint and, and critical claim is often aimed at, at San Francisco. Not uh, denying the importance of that, but to me, as a song, somebody who loves songs, um, just so many good two and a half minute, three minute songs come out of Los Angeles in that period. The association with the TV and film industry is a, the monkeys a representative of that, I guess. Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to start with the monkeys, kind of nailing our colours to the mast. Um, the prefab four is obviously they're known um, by some people, uh, and the fact that that Los Angeles scene after after you've got the surf sounds about '64, and then suddenly the Beatles appear on Ed Sullivan, you've got the British invasion, but you've also got a response from American young American bands who've gone out and seen the Hard Days Night or whatever, and said, "Yeah, we can do that." And obviously the industry latches onto it, and the result is the Monkeys, obviously denigrated at the time because they didn't play on their own record. But uh, this Pleasant Valley Sunday was the first single they they did more than sing on. Um, so, uh, yeah, it seemed an appropriate start, really. Yeah, uh, Michael Nesbiff, obviously no longer with us, with a, a great guitar intro. And um, they put their own stamp on the Goffin and King demo there. Yes, I, I think so. I think uh, irrespective of who played on their records, and you just mentioned Mike Nesmith, um, has got that great kind of Beatles cop guitar at the beginning. Um, I think there's always kind of a like homogeneity of sound almost that uh, the uh, the session musicians who played those records stand up just as well as, as the records that the monkeys themselves made um, after they kind of wrested control from, from Don Kirshner. We've got uh, 16 tracks here today, which is just a, a small selection of, of, of that incredible period. Next, it's shift to uh, Captain Beefheart and Zigzag Wonder from his debut album, Safe as Milk. How long was uh, the Magic Band and Captain Beefheart percolating in that LA scene? Uh, I think it's quite a while. I think even he'd uh, collaborated with, with Frank Zappa in late 50s, maybe early 60s, before joining this R&B band with Alex St. Clair. Uh, and then, obviously, the first single for A&M was a cover of Diddy Wah Diddy. And then the second uh, second single was written and produced by, by David Gates, subsequently of Bread, of course. So that's kind of partly the appeal of the uh, that LA scene, really. You've got all the kind of straighter guys, if you like, mixing with um, with people like Zappo and, and Beefheart. There's a great story, in fact. The guy who uh, played Robin in uh, the Batman show uh, made a single that was written with by Zappa and, and featured... Um, is backing band as, as vocals, uh, the, and the idea of like Batman and Zappa together. Um, but of course, we've seen as well that, that there are photos of um, you know Zappa involved with the monkeys as well, dressed as Mike Nesmith. While Nesmith was dressed as Zappa, and, and Beefheart was part of that as well. That kind of overlapping of the straight scene and, and what we call the freak scene now. But uh, it was all grist to the mill at the point. Everybody uh, was involved with everybody else, uh, and and. Beefheart is obviously now assimilated into the mainstream to such an extent that Zigzag Wanderer was actually used in a car commercial a couple of years ago. That's an extraordinary thing. There we go. The 60s counterculture is, is, is now part of advertising, really. And Ry Kuda was involved in that period, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he left pretty quickly. I think he, he fell out with, um, with Beefheart, uh, went off, 
actually, I think it's I think he'd gone before the album even came out. He was due to play with them at the Monterey Festival, but because he wouldn't tolerate Beefheart's behaviour any longer, they, they had to cancel their appearance at Monterey. mentioning about Captain Beefheart and the span of time on the scene but as a group as we move to our next track Buffalo Springfield and the song Do I Have to Come Right Out and Say It the band were formed in early 66 and playing their first gig a few months later and then soon after they were recording the album so that all seems quite a a short spanning comparison. It is I think with Springfield you've got um two writers who um, were as good as anyone around so I think that it wasn't so much a case of them playing and, and paying their dues as it were as they go into the studio and say look we've got these great songs and of course um, Stephen Stills had written uh, for what it's worth uh, about the uh, closure of Sunset Strip nightclub Pandora's Box and that became a big hit and suddenly Buffalo Springfield were a major band. But yeah, it, it was very quick in their case, definitely. Um, I mean, this, this is one of the issues of the box set, really. If you, <laughs> we only allowed one track by each band from the majors. So how do you choose one Buffalo Springfield track? In the end, I went for Do I Have to Come Out, out and Say It? 
but it could have been anything really. That debut Buffalo Springfield album certainly was recorded at Gold Star Studios, which Phil Spector had the association with and, and the Beach Boys. Gold Star, yeah, that was probably the uh, the most significant studio in the area. An awful lot of classics were, were made there uh, in much the same way that, say, Abbey Road in this country uh, would have been the uh, chosen venue, really. Uh, yeah, the um, the Buffalo Springfield album came out in March 67, uh, but the album had been recorded in the summer of 66 at Gold Star. And I think there's a, a photo of Buffalo Springfield at Gold Star in in the booklet for for this uh, CD. Do I have to come right out and say it? Tell you that you look so fine. Do I have to come right out and ask you to be mine? If it was a game I could play it to make it but I'm losing time I gotta bring you in you're overworking my mind the human expression and calm me down so you've mixed some of those big names with acts that some people may not know about although uh, certainly in this 
this case, uh, the the, uh, the singles cost quite a, a lot and a, a very sort of cult. So that the Human Expression was a group that came from different bits of California and then moved towards L.A.? Yeah, that's right. The lead singer was, as you can hear, very influenced by um, Sky Saxon and the Seeds. They probably didn't get as far as they, they could have. They, they turned down Born to be Wild, um, thinking it was a bit of a cheesy song. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, they, uh, again, a band who didn't exist for that long, really, as, as we've said about, uh, bands in, in England, um, not being able to make it locally and going over to Europe, maybe. I, I think the same was true of Los Angeles. There were just too many major acts to really make a splash. But uh, yeah, I, I've always liked this song. It's um, They've got one or two other songs as well that have been compiled over the years, but Calm Me Down is, is incredibly neurotic. Um, and I do like a good neurotic record. <laughs> yeah, because I think they only had a handful of s- singles and just a, a case of um, misfortune and things turning. One of the band members had hurt the hand or something and they tried to replacement guitarist and, and things didn't work out and then they just call it quits. Yeah, one of the interesting things about, about researching the compilations, uh, obviously I normally do um, British stuff, and the number of bands in LA who were so young, 16, 17, 18 years old, and ended because they finished school together or gone off to, to college or university or, or simply had been drafted to Vietnam, Gosh. which obviously wasn't an issue over here. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, they were high school students, the human expression, when they came together. Did make a couple of singles. Um, but like I say, they, they turned down the Mars Bonfire song, Born to be Wild, and went with another song of his, Sweet Child of Nothingness, which kind of lived up to his name. And then they uh, they separated. In those days, it wasn't a career. If you didn't have a hit and a couple of singles, uh, a lot of guys just, just said that's it, enough is enough. And they went off into the real world. <laughs>
And one of the pivotal LA groups was Love and She Comes in Colours, which uh, was released on the Electra label. So that was a song that, although it was on Electra, just couldn't get in the, the Hot 100 and, and failed at the time, which is startling given the quality of the track. Yeah, again, they were they were big in LA. I think uh, the late Arthur Lee said that um, uh, they inherited the Birds audience um, after the Birds had left Vidolitos and, and became massively successful. But they were probably more popular in Europe than they were in, in America. Uh, I think Forever Changes, it did uh, did chart over here, whereas it didn't really do anything in America. And again, She Comes in Colours didn't chart in, in America, although obviously Mick Jagger was paying attention because he nicked the main lyrical image for, for She's a Rainbow. Arthur Lee was convinced of that, wasn't he? I don't think there's too much doubt about it. I mean, you can't... I don't think you can sue somebody for, for stealing four words from a song, but it was obviously quite... Uh, an image that suited the times, really, 1967, that was the Stone psychedelic period, and She Comes in Colours was a kind of nudge-nudge, wink-wink kind of lyric that, that suited the times. But that's a bit galling if you're Arthur Lee and you're struggling to uh, to make a living, really. A thought in my head, I think, of something to do. Expressions tell everything I see one on you Whoa, 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 whoa My love, she comes in colors You can tell her From the clothes she wears When I was invisible I needed no light You saw right through me, you said was I out of sight? Whoa, 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 whoa My love, she comes in colors You can tell her From the clothes she wears She comes in colors You can tell her From the clothes she wears Tell her from the clothes she wears When I was in England town The rain fell right down I looked for you everywhere Till I'm not around Whoa, 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 whoa My love, she comes in colors You can tell her from the clothes she wears So 
So next to a group, Urban Renewal Project and Computer Girl. Now, you may not be familiar with the name, but actually you will be familiar with two of the uh, band members. And uh, that song in particular has got uh, a new lease of life as well, given the film. But uh, I'll let you explain this. Yeah, I I was really chuffed with this to get this because back in 1974 when this town ain't big enough for both of us was a hit for Sparks I was a massive fan of the band bought the album went back to the two Bearsville albums as well so putting this together I was aware that Computer Girl had come out through the Sparks film and on the Japanese only release some years ago about 15 years ago I think so I thought I'd try their manager and didn't get a response left it a few months and then when we were about to finish off the compilation I thought well I have one more go and um, I, I emailed again and said uh, wonder if you could respond to my previous email and she came back and said sorry I missed your previous email yes that's fine and we sorted out a deal and yeah this is Computer Girl recording January 67 I mean who, who was recording Recording songs about computers in 1967. Just a staggering song. And it is literally, um, it takes the phrase computer dating quite literally in that the girl, it's almost like a David Lynch concept where the girl becomes the computer. And I think it was probably inspired by Harvard students using an IBM computer in late 65 to create the world's first computer dating service. I can imagine the male brothers reading that and thinking, aha, there's an idea for a song. Uh, but Computer Girl, January 67, um, is inc- incredibly ahead of its time. Yeah, and uh, most people wouldn't have been familiar with the name Urban Renewal Project, perhaps um, unless they saw the Sparks Brothers film. But, um, I mean, I'd heard of Half Nelson just about, but not this moniker. No, this was slightly earlier. There were two, it was kind of two families. It was Ron and, and Russell and Ron's best friend at California University, uh, Fred Frank, and his girlfriend, subsequently wife, Ronna. And, and it was uh, Ronna said that, that, that they rehearsed in Ronna Russell's garage and, and their mother brought us out lemonade while we were playing. So it was really an incredibly tiny uh, thing. Uh, I think they had a 12-year-old drummer who couldn't, couldn't play, <laughs> couldn't go travel outside the area to play. His mum wouldn't let him or something like that, so... So it's um, obviously Sparks became a massive band, but this is early 67 uh, and they've been going for a year or two by then. And it was just a local, uh, a local kind of um, after school activity almost. Uh, and they played in a couple of Battle of the Bands competitions, etc. They went into, to, to make this record, they, they paid the money for a one hour recording in, in a Hollywood studio. And that was what they did. And yeah, it's uh, it's a staggering thing to be made that early by such a young band.
date with her Stick and IBM card In a stomach Oh, if you like a date with her Place an IBM card In a stomach Computer girl, my computer girl. And now we have the international submarine band and luxury liner, and they're a group featuring Graham Parsons. Yes, that's really what they're known as, really, um, for Graham Parsons' involvement. Uh, they'd actually signed to Lee Hazelwood's label and recorded the album with his girlfriend, who is also on our compilation. In fact, I should shut up because I've just realised they're next. <laughs> uh, so, so yes, uh, they International Submarine Band. They started working on the album July '67 and then cut the the LB in in uh, finished it off later that year. But then in February 68, Graham Parsons joined the Birds. Lee Hazelwood wasn't happy, but he, he threatened... Um, that, that's why Graham Parsons' vocals aren't on Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Uh, initially, because uh, there was a contractual infringement claimed by Hazelwood. Meanwhile, he put out the, uh, the International Submarine Band recordings, uh, including Luxury Liner. And to me, this sounds, this sounds really commercial, but... Um, Maybe country rock, uh, maybe they were a little bit ahead of their time at that point. It does have one of the Wrecking Crew members on it, actually, Joe Osborne on bass. And it's amazing how many songs on this compilation feature members of the Wrecking Crew. They, it must have been, they must have been working like 18 hour days in the studio. Um, they're just doing everything. Yeah, you can see why the album failed. Nothing to do with the quality of the music, but, but the fact that there wasn't a band really to, to promote the, the record. And I, I assume it was a, quite a period of months before the album was released anyway, after the split. That's right, yes. It, it was a kind of thing where, where I think Lee Hazelwood said, well, I've paid for it, I might as well put it out. And obviously he might have been hoping to piggyback on, on the birds and, and Parsons now being in the birds. But of course... The birds in '68, '69 had kind of lost their audience anyway, so so there still wasn't anything to piggyback really. Um, and yeah, LHI, um, the Hazelwood's label, obviously stands for Lee Hazelwood Incorporated or something, uh, was a very small label. I never will I've been a long lost 
Teased us with this <laughs> in our last track. Inadvertently, yeah. <laughs> Lee Hazelwood and uh, uh, Susie Jane Hocum uh, with Sand, which was a single on MGM in '66. And this was a very interesting combination of talents. Yeah, it's an interesting record. It doesn't really fit into any category, which is, is partly what I like about it. Uh, Lee Hazelwood re recorded it a year or so later with Nancy, Nancy Sinatra, and, and that is one of the kind of odd aspects about licensing a, a project like this. Uh, Warner Brothers own both Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra. We were turned down on Nancy Sinatra, but given the go-ahead for Lee Hazelwood. So um, so I chose this song. Um, it was one of Lee Hazelwood's favourites. It's kind of like um, a biblical thing with a slightly dodgy old man, older man uh, approaching a younger girl. But I think we can get away with it, and it's called Sand anyway. So, just linking back to the last track, was it that Susie produced the International Submarine? Susie, Susie had bumped into Lee Hazelwood at some eatery in, in Los Angeles, and she'd said, not only am I a singer, I'm a producer as well. And um, Lee Hazelwood took a shine to her, and they employed her with LHI. She apparently oversaw the International Submarine Band recording as well as carrying on making records and with Lee until, until he left and, and went to Sweden in the early 70s. Yeah, she obviously had talent. And in fact, he carried on making records with her, but he was obviously having the hits with uh, with Nancy Sinatra, uh, which is why he was short of material for both bands, both acts really. And so Sand was re-recorded with Nancy Sinatra in, a, in a probably a more psychedelic way. And Lee Hazelwood's career went back to the mid-50s. He'd been around quite a while, had a very deep voice, and I think Frank Sinatra was a little bit concerned about, about him getting involved with Nancy and uh, leading her astray. But, um, yeah, he uh, he was one of those figures who'd been around for a long, long while, 
working in, in various uh, with, with various other people in the early 60s yeah it, he he continued to be productive uh, for a long while but i think he he was he was a difficult person and i think Susie Jane Hokum said that he really went to Sweden after he'd, he'd burnt his bridges in LA he'd kind of alienated everybody uh, including Grand Parsons obviously <laughs> Young woman, share your fire with me My heart is cold, my soul is free I am a stranger in your land A wandering man, call me sin Oh sir, my fire is very small It will not warm thy heart at all But thee may take me by the hand Hold me and I'll call thee sand Young woman, share your fire with me My heart is cold, my soul is free I am a stranger in your land A wandering man called me sin At night when stars light up the sky Oh, sir, I dream my fire is high Oh, taste these lips, sir
And we had Captain Beefheart earlier, so now we've got the Mothers of Invention and Hungry Freak Daddy from Freak Out. So this is another debut, isn't it? A debut album. It is a debut album, and it's a pretty extraordinary debut album, but also it's a debut in terms of the record company allowing a Mothers of Invention track to appear on a multi-artist compilation. So, again, didn't expect to get that, and it was kind of like a wish list almost. Yeah, I'll I'll have Hungry Freaks Daddy, please. And we were absolutely astonished when it was cleared. So, yeah, Hungry Freaks Daddy has got a bit of a quote from Can't Get No Satisfaction, but it's really an attack on on the American education system. yeah, an extraordinary record to be making in early 1966 again. And once again, just proof of the, the sheer diversity of talent that was operating in LA at the time. Uh, and I do think I, I kind of view Zappa, who was conducting uh, classically trained musicians for, for that album. I, I do think of him as kind of like the dark version of Brian Wilson's kind of uh, commercial harmony pop thing um, in that both of them had an extraordinary command of the studio even if they were working in, in slightly different musical facets. Freakout's a very interesting album being a, a double um, often said to be a, a concept album a very a very early one as such but uh, also early versions of the album had a freak out map in there of, of certain spots in LA so a record very associated with the LA scene that's right I, I think um, at that point um, Zappa had been around for a while and had been given a record deal by by Tom Wilson at MGM Verve who obviously produced Dylan and Simon Garfunkel, and he heard one of their songs, uh, Trouble Every Day, and assumed they were an R&B band on the back of that, and and signed them to to Verve, and then got a bit of a shock when he got in the studio and heard all this kind of weird stuff going down. Mr. America, walk on by your schools that do not teach. Mr. America, walk on by the minds that won't be reached. Mr. America, try to hide the emptiness that's you inside. But once you find that the way you lied and all the corny tricks you tried will not forestall the rising tide of hungry freaks, Daddy.
America walk on by your supermarket dream. Mr. America walk on by the liquor store supreme. Mr. America try to hide the product of your savage pride. The useful minds that it denied the day you shrugged and stepped aside. You saw their clothes and then you cried. And next we have the American <laughs> or version of the Kaleidoscope or Kaleidoscope and Keep Your Mind Open here. And is that David Lindley? It is indeed, yeah. I, I think um, several of them were, were working under pseudonyms at the time. But um, yeah, again, this is, this is a great song, quite well known in psychedelic circles, but not, uh, not a single at the time. But it's it certainly uh, accepted now. I think John Savage included it in his list of 50, 50 classic uh, American psychedelic records. They were formed in, in Los Angeles by, by, as you mentioned, David Lindley and three or four others who, who'd been playing in folk clubs. Uh, and then uh, made the Side Trips album, which kind of covers all sorts of bases, but it does include this kind of Vietnam, uh, Vietnam War lament, keep your mind open. They are generally considered, I think, by a lot of people to be a San Francisco band because they often played there, but they they were based in L.A. Um, at the time. I think Jimmy Page later described them as his favourite band of all time. And after Kaleidoscope split, David actually went over to the U.K., didn't he? Yeah, the, the band fragmented. David Lindley obviously got a, an incredible reputation with It's a Beautiful Day as a master violinist. Um, although that probably wasn't, it probably wasn't a great deal of competition in terms of violin players in rock music, but, uh, yeah, they, they were talented. I, I think they probably ran out of steam a little bit, um, made four albums before they split in 1970, but, uh, again, at their peak early on, they, um, they covered all bases and yeah, just a, a classic LA based band, um, when they formed in 66. Oh, 
wars fought with men like chess, no consequence of lies. And the only sound that's heard is that of weeping wise. Still love remains in some strong hearts. Keep your mind open. We're back to one of those great obscure singles here, The Prophets of Old Just Can't Wait. Was this like a private pressing or an own label release or something? It, I mean, it's a different um, method of working in America. What we consider to be private labels, it seems to me that almost every small label was affiliated to something larger in America, um, as opposed to like somebody going down to the pressing plant and doing 99 copies, which is what would happen over here. So, I mean, it sounds like they are not, they didn't have that many people in their corner but in fact just can't wait is their original song the other side was go cry on somebody else's shoulder from the aforementioned first mother's invention album and because the american industry works differently than the british one they had to go to offices uh to frank zappa's office to meet him to uh, get his permission to cover the song over here it'll be covered by mcpsprs and you wouldn't need permission to cover a song but um it, it works differently in america and they had, they had to get permission before they could cut it as it turns out uh go cry on somebody else's shoulder is pretty dull it's just a faithful cover of of zappers do what pastiche really but just can't wait sounds very much like question mark and the Fisterians, and they were a chicano band american mexican-americans who played at Gazaris and, and Sea Witch Club as well, which is a couple of doors down from Dino's. They were also managed by um, Casey Kasem, who famously <laughs> famously became the voice of Shaggy in Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they opened for bands like The Doors, The Seeds and The Turtles. So even though it does look like a private pressing, you can still say, well, they were obviously well-connected. And again, this single was made at Gold Star. Yeah. So it's not, like I say, it's not like recording something in your basement or anything like that and uh, pressing 99 copies. And some of the members, again, you were saying they had associations, but some of the members continued well into the 70s in other packs. They did. The drummer, uh, John DeLuna, was uh, with El Chicano. They had a top 30 hit in 1970 in America. But also the... Uh, the main writer of this song, Just Can't Wait, was Benny Lopez, the bass player. And he'd been a member of the Midnighters in the mid-60s who'd, who'd had a, a song called Whittier Boulevard, which was a local hit, which celebrated the pastime of cruising down the, the main drag in East Los Angeles. So again, a part of the scene, just as much as, as the bigger bands, just that they obviously didn't get the same level of coverage. But this is a really strong performance. Just can't wait. 
we had Graham Parsons earlier, and this time we've got Gene Clark out of the birds here with uh, one of his first releases. So you say you lost your baby. It seemed to take a bit of time, not in modern terms, but certainly in 60s terms, before he uh, he got material out. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, this is uh, this is January 67. This came out, I think. He'd left... He left the birds about 12 months earlier, um, but he did have panic attacks and fear of flying. He did form a band locally with a couple of guys, um, Bill Reinhardt and Joel Larson, who went on to be in the merry-go-round, who were also on our compilation, as indeed are the birds themselves, I should mention, uh, although we haven't included them tonight. To me, this is his um, most birds-like song from that first album, which he recorded with the Gosling Brothers. So you say you lost your baby, and again, it sounds like a hit single, even even though it wasn't. It was released around the same similar period as Younger Than Yesterday. Did you think it's a case of it just got lost? Well, as we've already seen, there's just so much talent there. There can only be a certain number of hit records, and I think if somebody, like I say, he did work locally as the Gene Clark Group, but I don't think he worked outside of Los Angeles. I, th- I think it was quite a... Because he didn't, wouldn't fly, uh, or he didn't like flying, it, it's quite an insular thing uh, in terms of him working locally and and maybe not um, having, I don't know, he'd had the hit records, of course, so he'd have money come in from that, and maybe he just didn't really need to work or push himself at that point. And I think the, the first solo album is a fairly... Um, slowly recorded album like I say it was a year before it came out uh, after he left the birds and again there's lots of members of the wrecking crew on here Glenn Campbell Leon Russell mm. some of his former birds the ones he hadn't fallen out with <laughs> Chris Chris Hillman and Michael Clark are on there so it's hardly surprising uh, future birds as well um, Clarence White so it's hardly surprising it sounds sounds similar to the birds but um yeah maybe maybe he didn't quite make the most of his talent as he should have but as i say there were mitigating circumstances in terms of his health well you're smoldering with fly words catch the moment on the run you say there's nothing easy About the plywood track you're from And you stand inside your wind stills Watch the sentence act begun So you say you lost your baby Do you know that you're the one With a stand and watch the trials go From here to there behind the scenes your troubles to the moon trolls to swallow up like stormy dreams. Take an entrance to a standoff, looking if there's such a strife. As you say, you lost your baby, wondering if it's in your Questions of the pilgrims as they come to pledge what's done. 
name of Tabernacle Hillside Play a side for dying sun So you say you lost your baby You know that you're the one So you say you lost your baby You know that you're the Now to Spirit and Uncle Jack from the Spirit album from 1968. And uh, just a mention of Cherry Red have been doing some great reissues of the Spirit tool in, in that uh, period. So they had an association with Lou Adler, which led to them being signed? Yeah, they they lived communally in a house in Tobanga Canyon and they successfully auditioned for the Whiskey A Go-Go, which, which saw Lou Adler... Uh, signing them to his old label. That uh, debut album came out January 68. It, it's really, a, it, it's an embarrassment of riches. One of the things it has got on there is Randy Cal- uh, California's song Taurus, which was later um, <laughs> subject to a lengthy court case with Led Zeppelin as an alleged influence on Stairway to Heaven. Um, I, you, it's one of those things you can argue either way, but uh, there, it had fresh garbage on it. And Uncle Jack is kind of overlooked a little bit but it was issued initially as a B-side, and I think it was then flipped to become the A-side. And again, a great track, um, and very commercial as well. Um, I think people people nowadays separate the pop bands from the rock bands, but the rock bands of 67, 68 were capable of writing pop melodies as well. And this is kind of like I say, it's a really catchy little song, and again, should have been a, should have been a hit, but uh, didn't quite make it. The album was a big seller in in, in the period, so um, I guess it did have an airing. Yeah, I think it's that old thing of um, if you bought the album, why would you then go out and buy the single, um, you know, which is on the album. So at, at the time, in England anyway, that was less common. Bands would record singles separately to albums, but in America, it was already thought that if you included a single on an album, then maybe the DJ would mention that the album was also out and it came from the album, so you'd get some sort of kickback on that. So I think that's possibly the case why why something like Uncle Jack didn't become a hit, because everybody had bought the album.
So next we go back to another track which is uh, lesser known, or certainly to me, and we've got Merrill, Van Kauser and HMS Bounty and Driving Sideways. So Merrill, I think, was originally from Louisville, Kentucky, but um, made his way as a teenager to California. Uh, I think his family moved, yeah. Um, and he became near neighbours with Captain Beefheart, and they do have a kind of... Well, they did have a kind of frenemy status where Frank Hauser would accuse Beefheart of stealing his band members and there'd be tugs of war between the two bands. So initially, Merrill Frank has a band called Merrill and the Exiles and a couple of those guys um, went off with Beefheart and um, subsequently worked with Frank Hauser as well. So so there was that kind of thing um, where, where they were kind of deadly rivals but, uh, but Mel Fankhauser's gifts were more mainstream and more melodic than, than Beefheart. Uh, and I think this is quite a rocky song for him, Driving Sideways. It's from the album um, Things by Mel Fankhauser and HMS Bounty. He had several bands in the 60s. Oddly enough, Fankhauser is kind of the, the starting point for our compilation because Cherry Red had done a deal with him as a six-CD set coming out of his various 60s and 70s recordings including stuff with a, a band called MU. And I said, well, there's so much of his stuff here with different bands that, you know, we've probably got a starting point here for a Los Angeles compilation. And then we, we went to the majors and were surprised with how much stuff they allowed us to have. So so it's really down to Merrill that the, the original uh, impetus for, the, <laughs> for this, this compilation came to us, really. Yeah, because Merrill was very active in, in lots of different groups. Even at one period, he had a partnership with Ed Cassidy, Mr. Skin, you know, Spirit. Yeah, again, these people, they if you're percolating in the same industry in the same area, you, you do. Um, there are all kinds, of, all kinds of links there with different individuals that you wouldn't necessarily expect. I mean, the obvious one, really, is Charles Manson and the Beach Boys, or Dennis Wilson in particular. Mm. And I think even one of uh, Manson's acolytes, uh, Bobby Beausoleil, was in the pre-Love uh, band, uh, The Grassroots, with uh, with Arthur Lee before he was replaced by Brian McLean. So, so there are all kinds of connections there, and partly that was the reason for calling it Heroes and Villains. I mean, it's not for me to say who were the heroes and who were the villains, but um, the appeal of the set really is you've got this real kind of sweet innocence mixing with this really very dubious creepiness. And it's difficult to tell which is which. Neil Young recommended Charles Manson to the Warner Brothers, to Mo Austin at Warner's. So uh, we look at this now and, and we separate these people, but it was all one big melting pot, really, at the time. And that's partly the fascination with it. I mean, the stories on this album are, are astonishing, really.
You mentioned earlier about the heroes and villains concept coined by the Beach Boys, but um, John Phillips is uh, such a figure. The Mamas and Papas such a riches of talent. Yeah, I've always had this feeling about the Mamas and Papas that because they're mainstream, they're overlooked. Their sound is mainstream. The songs are fantastic, but um, even when I was talking about this with somebody at Cherry Red, they said, well, you know, Mums and the Papas is just straightforward pop. And I said, well, well, actually, it's really classy. And I think um, 12.30, Young Girls Are Coming to the Canyon. Obviously, it was featured in Once Upon a Time in America two or three years ago when it became a central point. And again, that was along with the Frank Hauser acquisition, that was the uh, that was the impetus for this because I love the film. Um, it's obviously set in LA in 69, the Tate Killings, etc. But the soundtrack album is very underwhelming. And it was almost like because they didn't want to license stuff in, that they'd missed out all these great things which were featured in the film, but they didn't want to put on the CD because it would cost them more money. And obviously, there's a limit to how well CDs sell these days. So it seemed to me that there was a there was scope there to do compilation, obviously four-hour compilation, that would almost work as a as a better soundtrack to Once Upon a Time in America than the actual official CD compilation they did. 12.30, a track that uh, is not as known here in the UK, because I'm not sure it got a release, or it certainly didn't chart if it did, but in America it was a, a relatively um, successful single. Yeah, it was a top 20 hit over there. It was their first and pretty much last single after after um, John Phillips had organised Monterey. Although he'd been working on the song for about 18 months, that apparently started it after him and Michelle moved to look out Mountain Road in Laurel Canyon. Uh, and initially, it was intended to be uh, given to Scott McKenzie. But because Mums and Papas had no new material after Monterey, the record company suggested that they, um, they record their own single, because they, uh, their own version, because they needed a single quickly. And this, this became their final top 20 hit before they split up.
Next we have the Stone Ponies, known for featuring Linda Ronstadt and You Hard Times. So um, Stone Ponies, much more than a vehicle for Linda in, in that there was uh, songwriting talent in the group. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the interesting things about about this is, is the chance to to include a song that isn't different drum, uh, which is the only Stone Ponies track that ever gets compiled. Uh, obviously, it's a Mike Nesmith song, um, and it's a great record as well. But they did have other songs as well, and New Hard Times is kind of quite fatalistic about late 60s boom time LA, really, um, uh, about how the good times would soon be over. Um, and in that case, it, it's kind of like a predictor of, of what would happen a year or so later, and obviously, the Manson Killings pretty much finished that kind of period of of, of Los Angeles in the 60s. You know, the 60s were officially over or whatever. Uh, and then you've got the more kind of introspective singer-songwriters coming along in the canyon and L.A. being synonymous with that, really, and maybe country rock because of bands like the Eagles. So, yeah, this was kind of um, a song that concludes that scene, really. There's a quote from Michelle Phillips about... Um, before 69, she had she remembers nothing but fun and excitement and, and having a great time. And she said that the Manson murders just ruined the LA music scene. Everybody was terrified. She said that she gun, carried a gun in her purse and never invited anybody over to her house again. So that is kind of, as I say, we, we've started with 64, the um, post-British invasion, the, uh, the surf sounds being replaced by bands who wanted to be in a hard day's night. And then we end it with um, with that come down, that 68, 69 come down, really. Like a, a few names on this set, continued, some fell away, but um, some had uh, new leases of life in, in the 70s. And obviously that was the case with Linda Ronstadt linking up with Peter Asher onto huge success in the 70s. Yeah, that, I mean, Los Angeles continued to be a scene, but it was a different scene. Um, and some of those people who were on the on the fringes of it in '67, '68 did go on to be, um, you know, significant talents. Randy Newman was obviously working throughout that period, but um, most people would accept um, most people uh, would look really at his early '70s work as being um, like a peak period. And uh, yeah, it did become a singer songwriter scene almost um and obviously that wasn't just in los angeles you you had the uh the music scene of the early 70s with carol king i mean she she provided some of these songs obviously with her husband 
and then she's suddenly a, a, a major solo artist. I guess that would be the the following set is a, a Laurel Canyon <laughs> one. So this is the this is the the seeds or, or or something else entirely. I guess. I think this is, does have that that sixties vibe to it throughout. It is the beginning of something that did carry on in the seventies, but became more cynical, if you like. There's a lot of money in the music industry at that time, a lot of drugs, etc. And I think there's kind of an innocence to the 60s stuff. You know, the fact that, that Buffalo Springfield are suddenly signed on the back of playing at the local nightclub or whatever, that sort of thing. Uh, and I, I think by the 70s, you were expected to be slogging around for a couple of years, really, before you... Um, before you paid your dues and and you were entitled to to, to like the riches of the industry, so yeah, I, I, there is a, a second element to this scene, but this is kind of like the first phase of it, uh, in my opinion. Well, thank you so much for your time, David. Uh, before we uh, exit with the Stone Ponies, just to say, here are some villains is available now. The sounds of Los Angeles, nineteen sixty five and sixty eight, and um, I do say this every time, but um, I do think uh, yourself and Cherry Red have surpassed yourself this time. And, and as you were saying, there's quite a lot of surprises and exclusives or, or things licensed on this set this time. Yeah, thank you. We, we were pretty pleased with um, how it panned out. But uh, we, we generally got what we wanted. It was a lot of fun to do, definitely. Well, thanks again. Yep. Thanks, Jason. Bye then.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.